We'll be reading verses 1 through 24 this morning. Follow along with me. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. And he abandoned the counsel of the, the, that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the, as the king said, come to me again the third day. The king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to, the tent, to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. 
But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Once again, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor at Christ Central Church, and um, I have to first of all just thank you for all the birthday wishes you guys gave me last week on the cards. It was my 45th birthday last week, and it was a little bit overwhelming for me. Um, and I thank you so much. I am so blessed by you guys. Um, and I talk to pastors in other churches all over the place, and when I tell them about my experience with you as a congregation and as the pastor of this church, they are shocked at how awesome a relationship I have with you guys. And I thank you for that. And I praise God for that and the opportunity to serve you guys. And I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to be anywhere else except with you. You're my people, and I love you. I really do. So thank you for that. It's an encouragement. Sometimes you get discouraged doing this, and you don't even know why, right? It's nothing anybody's done. It's just sometimes the work of the devil. Sometimes it's your own sin and pride. And your words were like God's comfort to me. I don't underestimate that. And I thank you um, for being used, that you were used by God to do that. Thank you so much. Um, so we begin um, the part of First Kings. Um, I say begin, even though we've been in this sermon series. We begin, though, the part of the divided kingdom between north and south in First Kings. And truly, I can't think of a more timely message for us or situation. With all of the stuff going on in this country, around politics and race and economics and religion and rights and critical divides it has caused in our country, but also in our families and even churches. When I think about all this, I can't help but think we need some grace for this stuff. Because we, well, at least I am having a hard time just getting along sometimes with people. Now, I try my best. I think I'm a pretty nice guy to not con have conflict with others and let them get the best of me. But like you, our best is not enough in certain situations and with certain people. In the infamous words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? Yes, we should all just get along, especially as we look at this thing specifically about God's people and God's church among God's people in this passage. But no, unfortunately, we don't, and most of the time, we have a hard time doing so. But the Lord is teaching in the Bible, in the message and work of the gospel, there is a call and not only a call, but an offering of unity for us. Unity, reconciliation, community, companionship with people who are sometimes not like us and may not be with us, right? 
In our passage today, it is so familiar in its characterization. Seems like God said, preach this for this whole year, right? You have Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the heir apparent from the city of David, the royal aristocracy. And then you have Jeroboam, head of the laborers, not royal, but smart and popular. It's a class battle among a people, right, who, who are called to be unified for God's glory and God's purpose, but because of deep-seated sin, now can't just get along. So Solomon, and we've been reading about and learning about so far, is dead. And the Bible says that Rehoboam, his son, set up his new king campaign head headquarters and coronation in Shechem. This is like going where the people are to kind of give the impression like you are the people's king and to, and to gain some momentum and, and, and gain the country's confidence. So Rehoboam has his thing set up at their version of uh, Independence Park, okay? And then a crew of regular people crashed the party led by Jeroboam. These are, again, the working class, the workers, the mill workers, the farmers, the people who go to, name, go to work with their name on their shirts. So and they say, well, if you're going to be the king, we need some new labor laws put into place. Because your daddy Solomon went plantation sweatshop on us. And while we helped him live large, the larger he got, the heavier his lifestyle got for us to maintain. But now we got Jeroboam leading us, and he's leading us to stand up for ourselves in this national class showdown. Now, our lives may not be so dramatic, but filled nevertheless with relational showdowns all over the place that demand, for God, that demand God's glory and our good unity and reconciliation and community to be brought to it. In this passage, there are three things I want us to focus on about unity and what it takes. Unity, first of all, requires sacrifice. Secondly, unity requires, I have just wisdom here, but I'm going to say divine wisdom. And finally, unity requires God's grace. Sacrifice, wisdom, and by all means, God's grace go through this story a little bit. So Jeroboam lays down his demands before King Rehoboam at his king-elect party, and this is what happens. Look with me at verse 4. It says here, your father, this is Jeroboam speaking, made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Now, let's just stop right there. What we see here in the face of conflict, unity requires sacrifice, right? 
And here's for you note takers. Subpoint A, the sacrifice of humility. And subpoint B, the sacrifice of our lives. The advice of the elders for King Rehoboam is the voice of God in this situation, if you didn't know, declaring that unity, solidarity, trust that will lead to a united kingdom like they saw under Solomon would come from what? A humble, gentle, servant leadership, caring and listening. Man, this word shows up a couple times, and I just realized how much when the passage was being read this morning. A listening posture. That if there is going to be unity and community, there must be the sacrifice of humility, of taking burdens, their burden in mind, to own their burden, right, as your own. Instead of making them and hoping they will carry your pride in your way, in your dignity, in your sense of honor, the elders are saying, you become the servant of your servant. Come off the throne and get with them. Come down off your desires and wants and drive and take on their concerns and desires before your own. Make their issues your own before your issues. But before we jump all over Rehoboam here, Jeroboam also lacks unifying humility. He's got a crowd of people behind him. And he comes in with a list of demands that have accusations on them. He does not come asking questions. Now remember, he's coming before the king. You don't roll up on the president. Hey, what's up, man? Nah, you'd be taken down, right? It's very similar here. He comes with, with, with these accusations, these list of demands rather with accusations tied to them. He doesn't come asking questions with any degree of proper respect. He knows things are tense. He knows that Rehoboam has come to Shechem for political gain, right? Some support from the nation. And Jeroboam rolls in deep, as they used to say, with an attitude. And if I'm reading this correctly, of putting Rehoboam on the spot of if you want to really be king after he already is, then you got to do A, B, and C. Not, I'm your servant, so please do this, but if you want me to be your servant, you better A, B, C, and D. And it goes back to the words of the elders, doesn't it? That if you want results from a relationship, if you want unity or reconciliation, it will require an attitude of servant humility. Jeroboam should have come in seeking to figure out how he and the people could better serve their king by discussing how the conditions made that hard instead of what you're going to do to keep us because we already halfway out the door kind of way. Bottom line, this thing goes wrong because unity requires a sacrifice of humility which means taking our pride again and our fears that we, fears that we will get crushed or overlooked and put the other person Above us, the Bible says, to, to speak to them and approach them like that person or their good is your first concern before your own issue and desire, or at very least equal to your own issue and desire. And yes, the Bible, all the way from beginning to end, is advising and talking about that impossible in this kind of advantage-taking world. I know where we live. Jesus' kind of idealistic level, loving your enemies kind of humility of letting someone else get the best of you and the best of yours. 
and rightly. I'm with you. I don't do this a lot. I don't go in the conflict thinking, let me see what I, let me see what I can do to help them. No, man, I'm going in there for my rights. Rightly then, that kind of humility and service will, will, will make you feel like you're asking to get stomped on, right? Asking for some sort of death to you. Well, subpoint B is this, right? Unity requires a sacrifice of your life. Do you know why Jeroboam was in Egypt before coming, before Rehoboam in that crowd that day? Well, verse 2 tells us. Because Rehoboam's dad, King Rehoboam's dad, King Solomon, tried to kill him when he heard the prophecy about Jeroboam taking over his king, half the kingdom. And so he fled for, there for safety, but he came back with a demanding crew and crowd. Why did he come with the crowd? Because he was scared for his life, because his life was a challenge, an opposing candidate to the son of the king who tried to kill him. And so it makes sense why Jeroboam wouldn't humble himself before King Rehoboam. And I'm kind of seeing it in my own mind's eye, kind of hanging out with everybody else, you know, with the labor force. Yeah, man, you, you need to do this. And kind of stepping back a little bit. You notice I kind of see it. Why wouldn't he humble himself? Because that would be putting his neck on the chopping block, right? That would be like giving a throne. He felt he de was destined and wanted a way to Rehoboam. Or worse, Rehoboam might have said in Vikings or Game of Thrones style, okay, off with your head. Why? It's a noble thing. You need to die, Jeroboam, because of the prophecy, so that you won't be a threat to my unified leadership. Come on over here. Let's get the axe. Let's deal with this, and we'll be unified. Guess what, y'all? Though God didn't design it that way, Jeroboam's relinquishing being the king or his death may have well, very well served at that, that day to unite and reconcile the kingdom. It's hard to hear. But very similarly for King Rehoboam, right? If he had followed the advice of the old men and shown, you know, he's a nice king. Hey, I want to work it out. Showing weakness. What would happen? Think about our world, right? I, I don't have this in here. Oh, it's so dangerous. Think about these debates, presidential debates and all. Nobody is willing to say, I was wrong. I've never heard anybody say in the middle of a debate, yeah, you're right. I kind of said that wrong. Or you know, when I voted for this back then, I was wrong. I made a mistake. Because as soon as somebody says, I'm wrong, well, I don't even have to go to a presidential debate. Some of you married folk, I've seen y'all. <laughs> Nobody's going to say, yeah, you're right. Or when you say, yeah, you're right, it's like a trophy time, right? And, and sometimes we joke, you just said I was right and you were wrong. Let's mark it down as a place in history. And the reason we don't do that and the reason why Rehoboam wouldn't do that is he's saying, here, here's the act, chop my neck off. He could have looked weak and lost some of the swag he inherited from his dad, right? He wanted that. I'm pointing this out because relationships, unity, community, reconciliation will require something of you, of your life, energy, and time, and lifestyle, Americans. 
lifestyle adjustments. Sometimes you got to spend more time with people. The kids can't go to bed at the right time. Right? Lifestyle adjustments. Sometimes you might miss the beginning of the game. Some of y'all. Sometimes people don't get along on Saturday at 1 o'clock during football season. That's hard for me. Please don't, get, don't, don't not be getting along at that time. I don't have time for that kind of lifestyle adjustment. <laughs> most of the time, y'all don't get along during what? March Madness. This is when most marriages and problems happen, right in March when we want to watch the game. I'm saying something that's very fickle because actually those fickle things hurt a lot for some of y'all. What is he saying? Basically, give your life away and lose it in some way for the sake of connecting and reconciling and staying connected or keeping things connected to keep the team together, to keep the community together. It will cost you and maybe cost you big. Pride. Being right. Not righteous, just right. Just winning. Just a point. I was reading an article in Harvard Business Review, and I don't make a habit of reading that. It's too smart for me. But it was an article on why teams don't work. And it says this, leaders who are emotionally mature are willing and able to move toward anxiety-inspiring situations as they establish a clear, challenging team direction. It says this, but in doing so, a leader sometimes encounters resistance so intense that it can place his or her job at risk. He goes on to say this, that point was dramatically brought home to me a few years ago by a participant in an executive seminar I was teaching. I'd been talking about how leaders who set direction successfully are unafraid to assume personal responsibility for the mission of the team. I mentioned JFK and MLK Jr. And then the guy in the class went on to say that, that one of the executives rather in the class went on to say and interrupted me and said, are you aware that during your lecture on leading and helping keep a team atmosphere that you've just talked about two assassinations and a crucifixion? Because <laughs> he mentioned Jesus too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi, and I have to say World War II since the Nazi thing keeps coming up, in the World War II era, writes this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man or woman, y'all ain't exempt, he bids them come and die. Unity, team, Community, community growth, Bible style, will require what I described as a gospel assassination, crucifixion and death of our individual pride and lifestyles, and a crucifixion of our personal self-righteousness. Unity will call for and requires sacrifice. The Bible tells us in this passage, those were the kind of sacrifices that Jeroboam and Rehoboam refused to make, and the whole kingdom split in half. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me real quick. So, continuing where we left off. So, he heard from the old men, elders, and then he turns to the young men. 
that had grown up with him and stood before him, the Bible says. And verse 9 says this, And he said to those, the young men, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. In other words, I'm going to make it worse. And then Jeroboam, hearing this, answers this way, right? He, to this harsh answer. He doesn't say, all right, dude, we're sorry to offend you, you the king. He says this in verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. You know what Jeroboam did? And what it meant to say to your tents, look to his own house? He was saying, No side, right? He was the first to invent and throw up a gang sign for the north, right? And then to say to your own house, he was saying, you better watch your back, Rehoboam, and the rest of y'all in the south staying with them, staying with him, right? Hit him up, right? You better stay to yourselves and stay on your side of the divide and don't come over here because we at war. Bloods and Crips, north and south. Israel and Judah. And though we might not do this dramatically in our lives, as dramatically, but when we can't and don't give the sacrifices for unity and relationship and reconciliation in the face of all kinds of fears, even in our household, right, misconceptions and even injustices that we do deal with, we go to war immediately. We, sometimes we do it, sometimes we can't help it. Walls are set up and boundaries fall between us in situation relationships, in relationships where we should be unified in some way as married again or neighbors, as a city, as believers, as a church, as men and women, as a human race. And we say, my side, right? And your side, and everybody does a little gang thing. But for unity, it should be my life for your good. But as we move on, not only does unity require sacrifice, it requires wisdom, a divine wisdom. Subpoint A for you note takers, wisdom about the outer workings. And subpoint P, wisdom about the inner workings. Now, I don't have time to pull apart all the language for you, but I want you to look how he asked the question in verse 6 of the elder, when he asked the elders. Then Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon, verse 6, his father while he was yet living, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? Now keep that in mind, right? How do you advise me to answer these people? Now look what he says in verse 9. And he said to the young men, what do you advise that we answer those people who have said to me. And in between the two, it said he had already abandoned the advice of the elders. The young men are unlike the elders, though. You know, I, I wasn't going to do this because the sermon can get long, but I got to throw this in here. 
the youth, the youth movement and young generation stuff is way overrated. You know, the Bible actually says, listen to your elders. We young people, you young people, because it's all kind of generation, you don't know nothing. You might be innovative, but innovation is not the same thing as wisdom and how to use it. Because with any generation that starts, starts off inventing something, they usually fall into bondage or get captured or mess up in the things that they create. And then it takes another generation to fix it. So you think you're innovative and get it and understand things psychologically and understand relationships better. You've been to more counseling than their parents have and all that kind of stuff. Then your kids you have are going to look at you and, and have to fix what you messed up in your innovative ways. Youth is way overrated. And I have to say this after turning a year older. <laughs> you know, this one thing, someone says, well, what, what, like, who's your target audience at this church? I'm going to tell you, top three, maybe number one, number two, right? Golden saints, I call them. People who've been walking life and with the Lord a lot longer. So I want you to honor that in this congregation. We need it. All right, that was free. But the Scripture is telling us when he says that these are the young men who stood before um, um, uh, uh, Rehoboam, these are, they're unlike the elders, and the elders have seen and know and understand a lot. They know the outer workings of the kingdom better than Rehoboam does, even though he's a king. They get the logistics and get this history and stories of the people who are complaining against him with Jeroboam. And the young men, the Bible describes, this is very important, as having grown up with Rehoboam means they are from one side of the railroad track. Do you understand who Rehoboam is? He's the king's son. These guys lived in the gated community. They never worked a day in their lives, probably. So the labor force comes, and he says, what do you rich kids think we should do about the complaints of the labor folk? Ah, oh, they just uh, ungrateful. They should be glad at what trickles down to them. They only saw and felt one side of the situations and have a truly limited knowledge of history and the stories of the people who complained. And I'm not making a demeaning class statement, and neither is the Bible here, but even Jeroboam, who stands for the labor class, is ignorant and insensitive to, hear this now, how God has chosen to work for the good, for the people, through the chosen lineage of David. Oh, this is a hard one, y'all. Because we all want to go for the working class, right? We all want to go for the, the populace. But we see his lack of wisdom in outer workings splitting away from King Rehoboam in his question in verse 16 about what portion do we have in David? What inheritance do we have with Judah? And the answer is this, plenty portion and much inheritance. And what he didn't know is that to break away would actually end the portion and inheritance that God designed to be given to them through the inheritance and lineage of David that King Rehoboam represented. That's a hard one to hear. In fact, according to verse 10, 
again, hard for us protesting American types to hear. What Jeroboam ends up leading is a rebellion in God's eyes from what is the ordained and chosen stream and source of God's blessing for God's people. The closest thing I can compare it to is if a person has a bad experience in church, they say, I'm not going to church no more. It's just me and God. They are in for a lot of mess. If they say, I'm just not going to do the church or Bible thing because it went bad for me. What? Do you know what you're cutting yourself off from? I know it's hard. Yes, you might have been through something. Yes, someone might have abused their power. But you still cannot because God has ordained those means to bless us. You can't cut yourself off. But this, right, is about how Jeroboam's lack of wisdom about the full situation, about God's word, about God's dealing, led away from unity that God desired. Like public enemies fight the power song says, in conflict, we are tempted to go for what we know, right? But here's the problem. Let's face it. We are often ignorant of each other. And we're ignorant of all the issues involved. I don't know anybody who sees it from every angle. We don't know what is really going on in many uh, of each other's lives, and most of us are too centered on what we want and how we've lived and how we've grown up and too afraid and feeling adequate or guilty that we move away from people and history and happening that make us feel uncomfortable. We are afraid to look around the dark corner. We are afraid to go to the other side of the argument to see, to see, to avoid losing our integrity. Remember, one of the main things that keep coming up in the story is he refused to listen to the people. He wouldn't listen. He couldn't hear them. But wisdom calls us to see and listen unity or reconciliation. And I'm not saying that once you see it all that you will be best friends or on the same side of the issue. That's not what I'm talking about. But we must commit to listen and see for the sake of being acquainted with the brokenness, the history, the fuller view of the situation and stories that are in need of God's grace just like you are. Like Jeroboam. Rehoboam is so tempting to look at. Like Jeroboam, Rehoboam types are so tempting to look at, right, as, as the problem. You know, it's so tempting to look at our rich or poor or different race brothers and sisters and be ignorantly and unwisely afraid. And we go to our political and ethnic and moral and neighborhood corners and get mean and give harsh, ungracious answers and run away or throw the gang sign of our side. We are called to be wise, the Bible's teaching, to listen to our brothers and sisters and the broken ways of the world. But that's the easy one. Because subpoint B requires a wisdom of the inner workings. Oh, this is a hard one. This is the impossible one, right? Again, I cannot read and break it all down verse by verse. I tried, but I had too many pages in this sermon. But both powers, both power moves by rather Rehoboam in coming to Shechem and then his cruel, cruel answer and then the way Jeroboam gives his list of demands and responds reveals more than political preferences. It reveals their hearts. It reveals their inner workings. It shows us, now we get the bird's eye view. It's easy to kind of see where people mess up when you get the whole story. I love this. 
We get the bird's eye view of the story from beginning to end that these two men are really lost. They're really bent in a bad way and broken with, with blinding and stupefying insecurity and lust for power and control in ways that they may not have even known or understood were in them themselves before the incident of conflict. I want you to see this. We're about to go a little deeper here because I want us to accept this fact. Unity, God's kind of unity, only happens when we have wisdom of inner workings. And when I say wisdom, I'm talking about having an understanding and handle on how your story and your brokenness and your broken heart has shaped how you hear things or whether you hear things and see things or accept or don't accept things. And people, do you know why you feel the way you feel when a conflict comes up? And if you do know, can you wisely manage those feelings? Can you hold them in? Can you not go off on people in certain situations and, and, and challenging to your way situations and not run away from the argument from people physically and emotionally in certain situations? And if you do flee from the sacrifices and situations that make for unity, do you know why? And do you know how to work past those things in your heart for the sake of reconciliation and unity. Do you really know yourself? Do you really know your heart and have command over it well enough to enter a situation like Jeroboam and Rehoboam and everybody? You know how the fights were in school. Ooh, he talked about your mama, right? Right in the middle. Some of us threw a punch in school because it was just too much pressure. Why? Because we're insecure about being rejected. And the people that, you know, how can you do it with the people they face? Because in high-pressure situations of relational crash and clash, I warn you, Anakin Skywalker style, in fear and pain and conflict, the dark side will come out in your world of relationships. When I say the dark side... It's the real broken you. The real fears and insecurities and pride and sin that hinder and drive your life will accelerate and rise up. Do you know the real you and the real me and what me and you toiling together is going to really mean? Well, you know what the Bible says about our inner workings, our hearts? It says the heart is deceitful about all, above all things. And it asks a rhetorical question. Who can understand it? It's desperately sick, the Bible says. Okay, let's complicate this thing exponentially just to make it a little easier for you to need God's grace, okay? What about your call to serve and sacrifice and listen for unity? How can you know and trust others' hearts and motivation and true authenticity? I was in a conciliatory meeting the other day and I made a statement about somebody and they said this, you don't know my heart. You know what I wanted to say? I can see straight through you because I got God's x-ray vision. <laughs> you're wrong. You're evil. You're bad. I can see it. <laughs> and I was wrong. And they were right. I can't see. 
I assign motive. I began to say, you did this because of this, because you like this. I got you. I read you. How you do the Yeah, I got you. I'm going to read you. When people say they can read you, sometimes, but more than often, you can't read nobody. And here is the thing. The literacy, I'm going to call it literacy, the heart literacy necessary to read somebody else, you don't have. Like the elders in the story, again, they stand for God, right? What God sees, saw in the people, they saw it, and that they needed relief and mercy. We don't know our hearts and our wives rule over them. So in conflict and community and church and the world and our households and friendships and marriages, romantic and non-romantic relationships are unknown and non-accepting of their hearts. We have unknown and non-accepting stuff of people's hearts, and it's just a mess. Why can't we all just get along? Because we can't be wise enough to each other's hearts and our own hearts and motives to do and shape and hold them in and back and forward to do what must be done. The real heart desire and fear and anger and ignorance, I'm throwing all these words out just to confuse you, and pain you've suffered will come out every time in you and them, and we will fight or flight, right? Or flee, go into flight almost every time. And God, this is a harder piece here, God will not always stop us from facing and getting into those relational frays. God will not necessarily break up the conflict. Look at verse 15 with me. So they're hearing this thing, and, um, and, and it says here, uh, Rehoboam did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs, what? Brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebar. This is telling us that God set them up and set them free to what? Be and express relationally exactly who they were on the inside, in their ignorance, and let their inability to be sacrificial to be who they are, we, who they really were in conflict, disunified and unable to be sacrificial, right? So look at verse 21 with me. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. They're about to go regulate. Do a little drive-by in the north. So the Bible, the, the Bible says that a, a prophet comes to him, and look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. Listen to this. So they listened to the word of God, and went home according to the word of God. So Jeroboam has been crowned king of the north, and there is now a divided king, and Rehoboam is like, we're going to roll on these fools right now. And he loads up to fight the north. And the curious, and the curious thing, unlike the first time through, when Rehoboam could not listen to the wise God words from the elders, this time he could and did from the prophet, and conflict was avoided. What am I saying? I'm going to say something quick and, and then move on to finish the sermon. Sometimes God lets relationships and communities and churches and denominations and marriages and countries have issues to divide, to have conflict, to come to a crossroads. Yes, I said it. To do something good and holy for his hidden purposes. Oh, man. So we don't know the inner workings of our heart, but you also don't know the inner workings of divine sovereignty and providence. 
What are we doing then? I want you to seek hope and grace from the God who does know. The only one who does get it and got us and gets all of us and feels you and me for all the lack of unity you have or have experienced in you or others' lack of sacrifice for it, right? And ignorance and lack of wisdom in it. There is a God over it and in the details in a way you can't see. Your conflict is not out of control. Stop thinking that. It is just not in your control. But the Bible is teaching us that unity, all unity, therefore, you guessed it, is only by God's grace. God is so much the God of unity and relationships that there's nothing and no one good enough, sacrificial enough, and wise enough to bring reconciliation and unity and community and togetherness that is the true kind but Him. We can't listen or change or break down barriers and live righteously in times of conflict without God's grace. I am making a very bold statement to you in the world that sometimes touts we can have community if we're all drinking a Coca-Cola and unified and reconciled and we can all get along. Without God's grace, there is no true reconciliation unity. You and the world, now hear this, are simply enjoying the work of God's common grace that you just don't see. You're living on the fumes of God's goodness just overflowing you. Why are there good marriages and good neighborhoods and good communities among people who don't recognize God as God? Because God is still good in God even if you don't recognize it. That's why there's any kind of unity. That's why we can have a United States of America for as long as we have. That's why we're not sitting around warring against each other and, and killing each other and becoming zombies and eating each other alive. Why? Because God's grace is holding it together. You don't even know why you listen to God's goodness. Why did I treat that person nice? Man, let me go ahead and tell you why. Not because you're good, you ain't good. Not because you got it figured out or you got the answer or you're going to write the next New York Times bestseller on how to get along. It's because God's grace has been given to you. You know, that's some truth in that whole national anthem thing. God shines his grace. God's showing his grace on you. Yeah, he's showing some grace because we should, the stuff that's happened in this country, oh my Lord, we should be in civil war still today. Some of us should be rising up. Maybe the NRA have the biggest chapters in the hood. Right? Why isn't the biggest chapters of NRA in the oppressed neighborhoods of the hood? Right? Couldn't you see it? South Central LA NRA. Because people tired of being oppressed. Right? That ain't who they're thinking about. When they lobby. Brothers who mad feeling free to carry around their automatic weapons. That ain't what people are thinking about. But we, that's a different conversation. It's only because of subpoint A, his sovereignty, and subpoint B, his sacrifice. God's grace brings unity where we can't because he alone is sovereign. It means God is the only one truly in control over it in it. And I've spent enough time explaining this in so many ways to go much deeper. But God sees it all, right? 
He sees everyone for real, 100, as some of y'all say. Divine 2020, right? When the character doesn't know why they or the other couldn't or didn't listen, the Lord says, I know, I see, I got this thing, which means this. So I want you to be careful here. God sees and hears the downtrodden and abused. And he sees the leader who must sacrifice. And he sees the whole situation and all the dynamics and all the hearts. But sovereignty doesn't mean just knowing. It means God alone has the power and ability to change and control and direct the hearts and open our eyes to see in places that we didn't know we could go. Rehoboam couldn't without the Lord, as we see in verse 21 and verse 15, and Jeroboam couldn't either. Listen, y'all. The sacrifice and wisdom to have the heart and ability to have unity and reconciliation, again, only comes from God's grace offered in his word. I don't know how much I can emphasize this. God's word comes like it did through the prophet in verse 20, beginning at verse 21 in the elder's story. But now in the Bible, his word, his theology his will, his gospel, teaching to guide and change the mind and wills of people. And then his Holy Spirit works in it through the word. And guess what? I'm going to say it. Miracles happen in our communities and relationships. We actually get along. Some of y'all actually listen to each other. Some of y'all actually apologize. We look around dark corners. We go into other people's story. We give up our lives. We are patient. We are kind. We are willing to die for each other. All because the grace of God supernaturally makes our hearts listen and lean in and break and soften. And we do crazy things like be the church of God, longing for peace and shalom and unity and reconciliation between races and classes and nations and gender and then actually becoming that by a miracle of a sovereign power for real. What am I seeing happen in this church and I've seen happen in us over the years? It is not a farce. It is the real thing, y'all. This shouldn't be happening. But it really is because God's grace is at work through the Word and through the sacraments and through miracles and through the Lord's Supper, through the preached Word and teaching and discipleship and fellowship. He has broken down and is breaking down barriers in our marriage and neighborhoods and denominations and city and you, the people of God, and His grace have sovereignly and powerfully, you have been changed and equipped, guess what, to be right in the middle of the conflict. Not only to resolve it, but to stand in the lack of resolve, in the gap of it. Because you have been called by his word, empowered by his spirit, to trust that God is there and over it. And remember that unity requires sacrifice. That doesn't change. But as we've seen, we don't have it within ourselves the courage to go for ourselves or others that might reject us or, re or mistreat us or make us feel stupid. And some of us are just pr too proud. I've got good news. For the unity that God would have us experience now and for sure when we get to heaven with every tribe, tongue, nation, and oppressed and oppressor will be gathered together in unity and even worshiping, worshiping together on earth. For that kind of reconciliation... By his grace, he's given us the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' sacrifice, Christ is unity. 
He is our unity. He is our reconciliation and hope and power of unity and reconciliation and community and having camaraderies and companionship when nothing else and no one else can give it for ourselves. In our rebellion against God and each other and crowning ourselves in autonomous stability of, our, of being kings of our kingdom, of queens of our queendoms, God sent Jesus into the fray. And this is what it looks like. Look with me at verse 10 again. And the young men who had grown up with him said this, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made a yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now where is my father laid a laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. I, my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Do you know what the gospel teaches? That Jesus experiencing the dividing scorpion and vulgar, vulgar curse of disunity on the cross. Don't you know he experienced on the cross having no inheritance? and no portion in God's grace. He was torn in two, humbled himself, and died for the sacrifice of our unity to bring those of us who would only cause a divided kingdom to be a united kingdom of his people. Philippians 2 says it this way, and I want you to contrast it the way Jeroboam and Rehoboam and now sometimes how you and me act in relationships. It says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, unity, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. The Bible says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what it means that we all confess and kneel? It means that we're unified when Jesus is Lord. That we can find unity in this servant, in this Lord, in this Savior who came and died and humbled himself in ways we couldn't so there could be reconciliation between us and God, but awesomely between us and each other. I don't know about you. I do know about you. We all need Jesus for our relationships. I don't have it in me without him to do what must be done, and you don't have it within you without him coming and doing what he did without you, but what he did for us. We need a mediator, an advocate for all our 
relationships. And Jesus speaks for us and through us and to us by the power of his grace and work. We need to know that the song of he's got the whole world in his hand and you and me, brother, means because of God's sovereign grace that even when we fail to get along, that somehow beyond our sin and failure, he can handle it and won't leave us alone to deal with it, that he won't abandon us in our disunity, but somehow by his grace, he will make it good and well and awesome. Christ has come so that we all can just get along through him by God's grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need Jesus in the Word, in the sacraments, in the song, in our fellowship, in our community here, to be manifest. We need your Holy Spirit. Because husband and wife fighting right now, Brothers and sisters divided, Sibyl, siblings not getting along, ethnic groups, the human race looking at each other like they're less than. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to repent and turn to the, the unity that you alone give by grace. Lord, my prayer is that we would pray. That we would say, God, we don't know why this is happening. We don't know why we're not getting along. We don't know why we can't see eye to eye. You do. And we call down. We ask for that grace from heaven to come and make a difference. Reconcile us once again, Lord, as we're broken. Man, I think about the churches. Oh, man, churches can't get along. Help us, Lord, to find unity in this city of Charlotte in particular, to bring the gospel to bear across racial lines, across economic lines, across neighborhoods, South Charlotte, North Charlotte, West and East lines. Do that through us, we pray, in a way only you can, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.